So the text today is Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thanks, Amy. Well, we are on our <clears throat> excuse me, second message of this series on identity and gender and sexuality. We've had a lot of interest in it, and as the elders have gone to the house churches this uh, past week and will be in this coming week, we, we've experienced and heard of uh, a lot of questions and anticipation for it. So we're, we, we, we feel like we're hitting on a, a timely subject, and we've received a lot of affirmation from you all as a church, so we're appreciative of that. Last week, we looked at the, the broad idea of identity, what it is, how it is formed, and saw that it's not something that we can discover from within ourselves. We can't go on a journey to discover from within ourselves our identity. Our identity is the, is the product of a number of things, not the least of which is the families that we come from, our parents, and all of the the genetics that come with that, but then the, the culture and the social dynamics and the people that we are a part of that are interacting with us as we live. We grow and we form uh, answers to questions about what is good and what does it mean for me to live a good life and what does it mean to respect others and what does it mean to live with dignity and have the respect of others. And so uh, we saw that dignity is not something that we develop on our own. God fashions us, God makes us, God forms us, and it's, the scriptures teach that God knew us, that God knew us before the, the earth was even created. And so we had, we had personhood, we had identity. Each of us, the text says, was, was fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that each one of us is awe-inspiring and unique, and, and um, we have a, a uniqueness and a distinction to us that nobody else has. So as we build our sense of self, because we are born into this world, and we immediately have all of these uh, effects on us, our, our bodies, the people around us, and again, we are in constant search for our definition of what we believe or what we are looking for to be good. What is it to live a good life? What is it to be a good person? What is it to be respected? What is it to show respect? So this week, we're going to look at the sources of our identity. 
the sources of our identity. And as we were preparing for this series, and so we've been studying for about six months. We've, Lawrence put together a, a series of books, and we've been reading those books once a month. We get together and we talk about them. One of the most significant ideas that we gained as a, as a team, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the most significant ideas that we gained as a team in going through this process is this concept of cultural scripts. Cultural scripts are a, a story or a narrative that has certain plot lines and certain features and certain characteristics to the story. And so as we live, we begin to, to see around us various cultural scripts that we can identify with. Okay, this word identify, we can, we can say, hey, you know, those experiences sound like mine. Uh, the direction that that script goes is similar to mine. Where it's going is where I want to go. And the people that are identifying themselves with that script are going in the same place. And I can identify myself with them. These cultural scripts help us interpret our history, and they help us interpret our experiences, and they help define what it is we're hoping for. And as we cannot, within ourselves, define our identities, and as we are looking for other people, okay, we're never, we're never these isolated individuals. We're always a part of a group that we are identifying with. We may feel lonely at times, we may feel independent at times, but, but the way you think, how you dress, how you act, how you speak is a product of, of groups that you've been a part of. These cultural scripts provide the plot lines for our lives. They give us some hooks that we can hang our lives onto that make sense of them. Taylor also, Charles Taylor, the philosopher that we've been looking into that's done a lot, probably most, more than any other contemporary philosopher on this idea of identity, uh, sees that we necessarily have to put our lives in the context of a story or a narrative, and that we have to put language and ideas and terms around these, these narratives, around these stories. The essential parts of our lives that we are trying to, to piece together are, are conflicts. How is this conflict going to be resolved? Am I going to come out on the good side? Am I going to come out in just more suffering and with no resolution? As any story, we, we hope that the good guys win, right? We hope that the bad guys are defeated, that the good guys win, and that we're on the side of the the good guys, and we hope for a happy ending. So we want the pieces to work together, we want the conflicts to get resolved, we want the good to win, and we want to see a hopeful future in the story of our lives. We are at a time where there are countless cultural scripts, Stories that our culture puts out there that we are to hang our lives to and identify with and kind of go down. There's no single one. We, our, our traditions, our history and the history of the world there and various cultures, for centuries, oftentimes, there was one or two or a majority of cultural, a majority cultural script. 
And now that's not the case. We grow up and emerge in an environment where there are a lot of choices. We have conflicting scripts. Our parents put, put their story upon us as we grow, but then we start interacting with our friends at school and our neighbors, the people we associate with. We start to see other stories. We start to see other realities. We start to see other stories that we connect to. And so we start to, we, we, as we grow and, and as we're going through those key identity-creating years in our teens, we, we really are faced with a number of conflicting and confusing cultural scripts, which leads to a significant amount of confusion because oftentimes these days, they're at odds. And we have internal feelings that aren't meeting the external expectations and so we're looking for ourselves from the people around us, from the groups around us, and we start to identify with these various scripts. Now, the passage that Amy read this morning is a passage that we're f very familiar with as a church as it is a part of the Colossians study that we go through in every house church, and most of you have gone through it multiple times. He begins the passage by saying... Do not be taken captive by human traditions. And this idea of human traditions is very similar to, if not the same thing, as this idea of a, of a cultural script. A human tradition is a, is a philosophy, it's a worldview, it's a lifestyle. They are, they are paths in life that we can put ourselves into and follow these human traditions. They captivate us because we see ourselves in them. We can identify our experiences and our history, our hopes, the future that we want, how we want our lives to work out. And so we enter into those traditions because it's what we believe to be is going to be the best for us. And so, for example, um, one of the, the, the profound, um, when this kind of really set in for us as a team as we were reading through this, uh, was from the book, it's called um, Homosexuality and the Christian by Yarhouse. It's one of the books that I recommended. And Lawrence is going to spend a lot more time, with on, on, lot more time on this because he's going to be doing the, the sermon in a few weeks uh, that addresses homosexuality. And one of the things that Yarhouse pointed out was that our, our culture has an identity script around homosexuality. And, and basically the script is, if you have any sense of a same-sex attraction within you, that means that you are gay. That's your identity. And what Yarhouse does is he just does a great job of, of explaining that there are, there, there's same-sex attraction, which is not an unusual experience. There is sexual orientation, where you feel like it is your predominant attraction. And then there is the gay identity. And immediately our culture tells you that if you have same-sex attraction, that means you're gay. And there's a whole identity around that. 
And if you've grown up in a conservative Christian tradition where that is not the script, and there isn't a script for understanding how to interpret same-sex attraction within a committed Christian's life, then automatically you're feeling like you're outside of this group you formerly associated with as Christians because there's no Christian script for dealing with and addressing same-sex attraction from within that tradition, within that worldview, within that cultural script. And so you feel like you've got to take on a new identity, you see? And so one of the things that Yar House addresses is that the church has done a poor and horrible job at creating scripts where people who have experiences that fall outside of the script can still find identity within Christianity and within the church. And so that points to then the fact that, we, that, that within our culture and within the church, there's existed another script. And I call this the, the script of religious morality that is enforced by a lot of cultural institutions that, is enforced, that has been enforced by the law. And it is a script that is defined by external behavior, not by heart renewal, you see. And so the church has not pushed out that, uh, that moralism, that behavioralist approach and created a script that, that begins with what it means to know and love Jesus Christ and to come into a relationship with him and let him address all of the ways that all of us, listen, all of us have deviant behavior outside of what Jesus Christ calls us to. It's called sin. It's called transgression. And what we've done over the years is create boxes for certain types of sin that automatically put you outside of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And biblically, sin is sin, transgression is transgression. And one of the big reasons that we wanted to do this series is to, is to set some new scripts about expressions of sexuality within the context of Christianity that gives us all some perspective on how to know ourselves, interpret our experiences, interpret our feelings, and remain as a Christian, in terms of our own walk with Jesus Christ and in terms of how we interpret others' walks in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at the whole issue of, of gender dysphoria. We're going to look at homosexuality. There'll be some other things that we touch on as we go. Uh, the next two weeks, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? All right? So we have a number of cultural scripts. I'm just going to kind of mention... I've got about eight that I'm just going to mention real quick. I'm not even going to talk about them that much. But they have, they have created ways of viewing um, ourselves and ways of viewing the world that are identity-forming. I've already mentioned that we have a, a historic national culture of moralism, 
that doesn't start with the heart or the transformation that comes with faith, but starts with external behavior and reinforced by legal structures that has a lot of the Judeo-Christian foundation to it. And so from the outside world, not from within conservative Christian Judaic principles, it's a, it's a worldview that has no place for those outside of the moralistic behavior. And to be honest, all of us don't belong inside of Christianity. All of us have behaviors that put us out. If we're to just look at behavior. Second, uh, so what has emerged over the last few hundred years is a therapeutic Christianity that kind of is a, is a soft Jesus that accepts everything, right? Because there's still a desire to hold on to Jesus and to kind of disregard his teaching because the teachings have been too hard and they've been oppressive to people. So we need to create a Christianity then that doesn't oppress, um, that still holds on to Jesus at least in some way, uh, but it's not really Christianity either because it doesn't deal with the issue of sin. And how do we deal with that? Because all of us experience it. We have a naturalism in the world that has no place for God and that everything that exists, our lives and the ongoing um, progress of history and all of the natural phenomenon are nothing, they have nothing to do with God. They have everything to do with nature. It's naturalism. There has been throughout all history and culture and times male-dominant chauvinism that sees men as the greater and more valuable sex or gender, and those words mean two different things, which we'll get into, at least in our culture they do. And this, this male-dominant chauvinism has been reinforced by religious texts and legal status, which has then led to the creation of another cultural script of feminism that has narrowed womanhood and undervalues manhood and elevates and sets a script for the ideal woman is going to have success as a professional career woman. It's just another script. And in all of the confusion that has surrounded us, because we've thrown out God as having anything to do with anything, um, science and nature explain it all, we don't seem to come to any sort of place of peace or resolution in all of these things. So there's a lot of confusion, and we're in the fourth wave of feminism. We're still in the long haul of male chauvinism. And so a lot of people are confused, especially when they start feeling sexual attraction and having ex experiencing same-sex attraction, again, which is not an uncommon thing, having those types of feelings. And I'll explain a little bit more of that why later. And so now we have another script of gender confusion and people electing to put themselves inside the script of I'm not a male, or, or I'm not a female, or I'm both, or I'm not. And I think, what was I? I can't remember where I was at. There are 78, 78, not two, there are 78 gender identities at this point. And I can't remember where that was established, but it could have been Wikipedia for all I know. But it's somebody <laughs> looking at a list, looking at a list. We have sex now in this paradoxical state where it is so cheap and available to everyone, right? It's a commodity. 
It's desired by all of us, and we pay for it, and it's readily available in all of its forms. Soon to be robots. In fact, the robots are already here. But yet, the paradox is, while it's such a cheap commodity, it's also becoming overvalued in that sex is identity. And so Regnerus, who's a pastor, not a pastor, he's a professor from Baylor. He's written a lot of books on this. His name is Mark Regnerus. We read a book of his called Cheap Sex. And he just kind of goes through all of the, the, the cultural dynamics around sexuality. It's a very recent book. It's great. Cheap Sex. It's another one of the books recommended. He says this, We construct comprehensive identities and communities around sexual attraction in a way unfamiliar to most of the Western world, including Western Europe. There is a unique identity formation that we put around sexual attraction in this country and form groups. We, we form churches, okay? The people that we identify with and become our family around sexual attraction. Quality sexual experiences are increasingly perceived to be just as pivotal, excuse me, Quality sexual experiences are increasingly perceived to be just as pivotal to human flourishing as clean air, potable water, edible food, ample shelter, and antibiotics. It is becoming a right. Quality sexual experiences. And in the absence of great male scripts, we have young men in another script they continuously give themselves to cheap and endless sources of what they long for, adventure, responsibility, and beauty. These are things that, that men do long for. They are good things, but now our experience of them is all virtual. We have virtual adventure, we have virtual responsibility, and we have virtual beauty, which empties young men of self-control and strength, the virtues that they're going to need to truly experience adventure, responsibility, and beauty. We do not have a unifying script anymore, really, for anything. We have, these, we have identity politics. We have subgroups and groups. Nobody is coming together. There is a loss of not only a national spirit, there is a loss of what it means to truly be Christian and so Paul wants to give us a new script, wants to give us a new identity, one in which the good is promised. It's not the passage that we read today, but the precursor passage, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. If you've done your homework in the Colossians study, you will have all memorized it. For you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But he has now reconciled you through his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, before God. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Those are religious terms that we need to put some more contemporary ideas to. What's it mean to be holy? Literally, the term holy means to be distinct, to be distinct, to be honorable, to be worthy of honor, 
which answers several of those questions. What does it mean to live in dignity and have the respect of others? All of us long for it. The psalm passage that we looked at last week, it said that God has made us to be awe-inspiring in his creation of us and in the distinct qualities. That's what it means to be wonderfully made, means that we have been made, each of us, with distinction. We long for it. And Paul says, it is yours. It is yours in Christ, holy, blameless, blameless. They don't really carry, the blameless doesn't carry the weight of the meaning of this passage. The same term is used in Ephesians chapter 5 when it's talking about the work that Jesus Christ is doing that the husband should exemplify in cleansing his bride and making her beautiful. The idea is beautiful. That idea is beauty. All of us long to be beautiful. Now that's a broad idea with a lot of different ways to define it. But God has made each of us to be distinctly beautiful. Distinctly beautiful. Uniquely beautiful. That we perceive ourselves to be. Our culture has scripts for what define beauty. But Jesus Christ has made you beautiful in his creation of you. And it's one of the works that he's promised to complete in Christ. Distinct, beautiful, and the third one, above reproach, which means that nobody has anything bad to say about you and to lay at your responsibility and to make you feel shame and guilt for. It is to live with a free conscience, freedom, where you are not enslaved to anybody's expectations. You are not enslaved to the pressures of the world. You are not enslaved to make... You sense of your life according to somebody else's script. You are living life on your own, directed towards Christ. Christ has promised these things. This is the good ending that we hope for. This is the good ending that we hope for. That we hope our, the story of our life ends up with. The good guys win. I'm in a place of victory, the bad guys have been destroyed, and life turned out to be good. We know there's conflict in our stories. But as in any good story, the more intense the conflict, the more great the victory, right? We don't mind conflict. We just want to know that it's going to end up well. The promise is that Christ will do these things. Christ will do these things. He will give us the good life. He will make us beautiful. He will make us worthy of the respect of others. We will be able to stand before God. Not just the respect of others. God will, will see us and be pleased with us. Those three questions are the, are the questions that, that Jesus Christ has promised to answer in our own lives. But we have some opposition we have some forces against us that would cause us to, to live according to a different script, and they're described here in this passage. The first one he addresses is the world. Do not be taken captive by human traditions. Which we've already talked about, they create, it create, the, the world creates scripts, temptations, telling us what the good life is pulling us into it. 
The second force of opposition is our flesh. The flesh. The flesh is our, is our, is our human desires for natural things that God has created us as humans for, but in our corrupt state, we pursue them for the beauty, neglecting God. We pursue them for the good, neglecting God. And so they become gods. We serve the creature rather than the creator, what Romans says. And so we begin to pursue food or sexuality. The things that our body is longing for and we have feelings for. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, that we have to um, reject the passions of our body. And literally, literally the word is the sufferings of our body. Our bodies long for fulfillment in the flesh in, in such strong ways that it creates us, it creates suffering within us. And then, so there's, so there's the desires that we have in the flesh, there's the suffering that comes when they're unfulfilled, and then there's embarrassment and shame when we use our fleshly desires to fulfill them. And then we have fear, and this is how our flesh exerts power over us in other ways besides desires. We have fear that we're not ever going to be able to overcome them. One of the chapters in Regnerus' book, Cheap Sex, says that most of the men that he talks to that have some sort of pornography addiction would love to no longer have it but they can't get out of it and then we start fearing because it seems like the flesh has mastered us which indeed it does the world masters us the flesh masters us but he says that the ultimate source of both of the these things are from the elemental spirits and I don't have time to do a full explanation of this. But when we think of elemental, we think of the, the in chemistry and physics. The basic elements that make up every other thing in the, in the known world, the known universe. The elemental spirits are invisible beings opposed to God that are at the source of every worldview, of every tradition, of every teaching, of every philosophy, of every cultural script that is against God. Amen. They work through thoughts. They work through deceptions. And they are integrated into every social structure that we have. Government, economics, schools, neighborhoods, what we read, media. These elemental spirits have worked throughout the millennia through ideas, through temptations, through thoughts, our minds, we, we are spirit. We are spirit. And the scriptures teach that until we have Jesus Christ and the spirit of God comes into us, we have a spirit that is under control of the elemental spirits. When Jesus says, your father is the devil, he's not saying that the devil possesses everybody. And I'm not saying that these, these elemental spirits with the scriptures and other places called demons, I'm not saying that they possess everybody. They influence everybody. And they generate these traditions throughout history and all ways of culture that we connect ourselves to in search of our identity, in search of what is good. They don't deceive us. I mean, they're not saying, hey, go become a devil worshiper. 
They are pointing to good things that God has created and say, listen, stop worshiping God. Start worshiping the things that are good that God has created. And so we have a new identity and a new script. He said, listen, the first thing you need to understand is that you have been filled in Christ. You are not incomplete. You are filled. So oftentimes when we are feeling our feelings, and we're going to have another sermon on this later, how to interpret thoughts, feelings, and desires. They're not all, because you feel them, it doesn't mean they're your identity. But see, we think that these, these pressures that come in, these feelings that come in, we say, you know, I'm feeling weak or incomplete, therefore I must fill myself. And what Jesus says is, no, you are complete. You are filled. Don't believe the lie, the feelings, the desires that would tell you that you're not full. You're not enslaved. You're no longer enslaved. The rule and authority of Jesus Christ has been given to you because he dwells in you and he has the fullness of God. For the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And now him, Jesus Christ, the fullness of God now lives in you. We are no longer under the control of the flesh, the world, and the elemental spirits. We are under the authority of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has given us his authority over those things. Amen. He says the flesh has been cut off, and the word cut off there, it's the same word that's later used in the passage in verse 15 to talk about the disarming, the, the removal of power. It's authority thing. And he says, you've been given life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, both of these things are through baptism. Because baptism, he's not talking about water baptism in this passage. He's talking about the idea of baptism. To be baptized is to be literally immersed into something. If you are completely immersed into something, you completely enter into that. When you come back out, you're completely, like think of paint or water. You are now identified with what you completely were immersed into. And he says, you have been baptized into Jesus' death. That is what cut off the authority of your flesh. Your flesh has been crucified with Jesus Christ. It no longer remains as master over you. And you have been baptized into Jesus' resurrection, which means that the crucifixion of your flesh, your old life, wasn't the end of who you are. You are now raised with him to newness of life. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. Jesus' death is your death. Amen. And because of these things, no longer are we under the enslaving captivity of the flesh, the world, and the elemental spirits. Which means that the weapons of the elemental spirits have been removed through the forgiveness of sins. And this is, an, this, this is a, a, a singularly important concept to grasp. Is much of our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, revolve around our histories, our sins, our past, and much of what we do in the future is an effort to get rid of our past. 
or to overcome the past or to do better than the past or to shake off the past or to rewrite the past or to forget the past. When our sins are forgiven, the past is gone. Oftentimes talking to people, talking to myself, talking to my family, I wish I could go back, boom, and redo X, Y, Z. I mean, we've all had those thoughts and desires. We've all stated those things. Because that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. Your sins have been forgiven. And see, the elemental spirits, through your thoughts, through your desires, through your feelings, because they interact with spirit, they are their weapons. And they condemn us through our thoughts, through our feelings, through our desires. They deceive us. And they keep making our past criteria on which we need to move forward into the future. And he says, they have been disarmed and they have been put into open shame and you are no longer enslaved to them. Which means you're no longer enslaved to the regrettable, guilty, shameful, fearful memories of your past that your flesh committed. Christians that have been Christians for a long time, decades at times, I go up and I talk to them, it's clear that they do not believe that they have mastery over their flesh and they live their lives in fear thinking they're never going to be able to overcome the sins that they commit. And that fear means that there isn't faith that has replaced it believing that Jesus Christ has given them freedom over those sins, giving them strength and courage. Fear is the absence of faith. If fear is your dominant emotion in regard to your sins and to your ability to overcome sin, that means you fundamentally at the core do not believe that Jesus Christ has given you the strength through the freedom you don't believe that you're baptized into his death. You don't believe that you're baptized into his resurrection. Faith yields emotional response. It does. Your life is a story. Jesus has given us an ending. But if we do not enter into his story, his story, history, his hyphen story, if we do not see ourselves as a part of his story, we're going to continue to manufacture, well, enter into the stories that our world manufactures. What's clear in this passage is that to enter into this, this new script, to enter into this narrative of God and his story and what it means about what it means for us to be in Christ must be engaged through faith. And it must, and faith has to have some content. It has to have some content. You have to believe some things, not just have this flowerly, ambivalent faith. Faith has content in something, has belief in something. So what do we do? What do we do? Regardless of where we're coming from, 
what scripts we've identified with, what feelings that we've had, what sexual attractions we've had, what sexual experiences we have, what sexual identity we have, whether it's gay or straight or bi or one of the other 75 options. You have been created wonderfully and fearfully by God. And he has called you into a place, with a, into a story with a guaranteed ending where the bad guys lose, the good guys win, and you come out beautiful, distinct, with a free conscience. That's, that's what we all are longing for. But are we going to believe it? And to believe it, do we know it? Do you know what it means that Christ died for you and in his death, you died. Do you know what it means that Christ rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and that by being baptized into him through faith, you have newness of life? If you haven't wrestled with those concepts, which is impossible for me, I can't transmit those to you in a sermon. Those are things that you have to think about. Those are things that you have to study. Those are things that you have to memorize. Those are things that you have to wrestle with God with. God, I do not feel free. I feel fear and shame and guilt. But I believe in you. Okay. Then let's start wrestling with God for that belief to become real. Just like Habakkuk had to wrestle with God to get to a place of contentment about the world collapsing around him. We have to wrestle with God when we are in these places of emotional disequilibrium where our fears and thoughts and desires are waging against us and we are not in control. That's when we can need to continue to wrestle with God and to come to grips, a solid grip, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the story that he has created for us. Let me pray.